0: hey everybody this is Jonathan Martin welcome back to the zeitcast hope you can see me okay I hope you can hear me okay uh, this is decidedly not scheduled not planned. one things that I've said all along about season three of the zeitcast barrel proof is it was going to be a little bit more light on its feet. fact of the matter is there are very heavy things happening in the world and it felt important to me somehow to be able to speak to you now. A lot of things are kind of converging in my own soul. I think I'm gonna start simply by saying, as we are grappling right now, and I say that as a person who lives in the state of Oklahoma in the United States, um, that knowing not everybody's watching from North America, but a lot of people are. As we're grappling right now with Russia invading the Ukraine. And we are in the midst of an extremely unstable time. We're still very much in the midst of a pandemic. To go into something else that is this unstable, I want to first just acknowledge and really bring into the space that a lot of people who are watching and listening right now are feeling a great sense of upheaval and I want to make space right now for feelings of terror, feelings of fear, a sense that perhaps in the same time where I don't know anybody who doesn't feel like on some level that their own lives feel a bit out of control in the midst of all this. Anything that destabilizes the world further, anything that makes us feel even more out of control, I just want to acknowledge what is scary Fearful, fierce thing that really is. And that there's a storm of emotions, really that surround all of those things, that at the same time, there seems to be a lot of chaos out there, that everything about this season has been stirring up all of the chaos in here. And so in this moment, we're feeling all those things. And the very real, very deep, authentic questions. So before I go any further, I just want to say to anybody who's feeling afraid, for anybody who's feeling unstable for themselves, for anybody who's grappling with this sense of how do I even begin to piece any of this together in a coherent way so that I can make sense of the world, so that I can make sense of my own life. Nothing would make me happier right now than for you to feel seen and to feel known and to know that you're not alone and to know that that experience is a universal experience right now and that no matter how much people might act like, they understand it, they get it, that it fits easily into a narrative or into a script, all of foundations are shaking in this moment and nobody really knows what to do with it. So with that in view, as a person who comes from a Christian perspective, as a person who comes historically from a Pentecostal, kind of evangelical type of perspective, I wanna address first this question because, and some of you watching may not know a lot about this, but depending on where you come from, there are many of us who have been raised with the mentality, who've been socialized in mentality, where anything painful anything traumatic anything difficult that happens in the world is somehow better for us as people of faith because we have this kind of sense that whatever pain whatever trauma whatever upheaval is inflicted in the world that for those of us who are Christians that those of us who name the name of Yeshua the Jewish Messiah Uh, that somehow this is better news for us because we're speeding up towards the end and one of the reasons that that narrative has become popularized through uh, I don't want to get too deep too quick but what we'll call dispensational theology a really popular theology since roughly the 1850s but did not exist in any form before the 1850s is this idea that everything that was written by the Hebrew prophets in their apocalyptic literature and literature like the book of Daniel, uh, for those who are Christians in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, that somehow all of that foretold this particular moment that we're living in right now. There is this kind of narcissistic assumption that what all the prophets of old, what all the angels What all of the great folks in the history of Judaism and in Christianity were really speaking about, they were real, they were really all just peering into this moment that we're living in right now. None of it made sense to them. So, when John, for example, the book of Revelation talks about locusts, uh, it's actually about tanks. There's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on. This idea that these ancient Hebrew prophets of old were actually looking into the moment we experience right now and only people who've been alive these last few years in a moment, a weird moment like this in 2022 have any idea what's actually going on. That assumption has led to a number of different conclusions. So, for example, in dispensational theology, much is made of this prophetic section uh, in the latter part of the book of Daniel, which is very much an apocalyptic book, very much a book that speaks to eschatology, that speaks to the, the end of things, to the shape of things to come. There is this language about a king of the north that will come and among more evangelical Christians, that's often been translated into this King of the North, will come from Russia. So when we were in the Cold War, uh, during this long period of American history where many people who were older than me knew what it was to live long before now there are drills for school shooting, they lived through nuclear exercises where the fear was that there was going to be a nuclear war between America and the USSR, where a missile would be sent and what, what would we do? And there was a procedure to get down under your desk, there was a procedure to run, to hide, and everybody was living with this present fear of this conflict between America and Russia brewing. A lot of people really mapped this on to Daniel's prophecy in particular. That Russia is that king of the north who comes in, uh, that fights against the people of God, that fights ultimately against the Messiah who is yet to come. And really this becomes something that's all about us. I don't know if I'd have enough time today or in 30 podcasts, whatever it is that we're doing (laughs) To really address all the reasons why I don't think that's a fair reading of what's happening in Daniel. I don't think it's a fair reading of what's happening in Revelation. There is, in fact, a kind of foretelling of a season that's going to come. Of a kind of abomination of desolation. That will, in fact, happen during the time of Jesus. During the time of Yeshua. Where the temple itself would be desecrated and where everything that was held sacred by the people of God, it would feel like the world was coming to an end, because the world that they knew actually was ending. Now, I'm going to say um, pretty robustly that the moment that the Hebrew prophet Daniel foretells has much more to do with the first coming of Messiah, the first coming of Yeshua, has much to do with what would happen to the temple with this abomination of desolation that is to come Uh, without having time to get into every technical detail I would say in brief that for people who read the Hebrew prophet Daniel in this way that one of the problems that we find is that while there is a near universal consensus that some of the things that Daniel foretold would happen during the time of Christ would happen during a time of Roman occupation that would happen during a time where this particular expression of Western civilization would put its boot down on the neck of Hebrew people. One of the problems that we face is that people across an ideological or theological perspective can acknowledge that the book of Daniel spoke in a very relevant way to things that actually happened during the time of Jesus or Yeshua. And yet there is this idea that somehow the text magically skips ahead to not talk about the end of Israel as we've known it. There's that great R.M. song, The End of the World as We Know It, to not talk about the end of the world as the people of God had known it before, but to talk about the end of all things. And there comes this expectation with that, that in order for Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, for those of us who are Christians, we believe that Yeshua is the Prince of Peace. We believe that he is the one who ultimately will establish the good reign of God in the world. There becomes this expectation that in order for Jesus to come and for his good and peaceful rule to be established, this is the nonviolent Messiah. This is the one who, according to the book of Revelation, conquers the fourth of evil and hell and sin and death Not because he takes the lives of others, but by sacrificing his own life. Revelation has this incredible image where John says that he sees the image of someone who's riding on a white horse. And his name is faithful and true. And as it describes in vivid detail this Hebrew Messiah the prophets were straining for, the prophets were anticipating, it says specifically, that he's wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood. But friends, don't misunderstand this. The robe that's been dipped in blood is not the blood of his enemies, is not the blood of his atonement of his opponents, but his blood rather is his robe has been dipped in his own blood. It is the blood that comes from self-sacrifice, not the sacrifice of others, that Yeshua comes riding in, decorated with this blood that represents Jesus' own self-sacrifice. The problem, friends, with the way a lot of people think about the end of the world, the way a lot of people think about end times, the way a lot of people think about that which is to come, is that it doesn't entail self-sacrifice. It entails the sacrifice of others. Instead of people like me, laying down our own lives. People like me laying down our own lives. It requires our neighbors to lay down their lives. It requires something catastrophic or apocalyptic to happen to them so that God can move some kind of eternal scheme forward on this abstract kind of timeline. So that for Christians, ultimately this means that we will be rescued that we will, through the parousia, through the second coming of Christ, there will be this beam-me-up Scotty moment where we don't have to deal with tribulation, where we don't have to deal with distress, but but we're exempt while everybody else is left down here to struggle. Friends, I do not believe that this is what the Hebrew prophet Daniel has in mind. And I don't believe it's what the Christian prophet who was actually physically touched by the presence of Jesus or Yeshua. I don't believe it's what he had in mind in the book of Revelation. Further, I don't believe it's appropriate that any of us plug anybody outside of ourselves into our prophetic schemes, into our dreams, into our ideas, our imaginations, our machinations, really, of what the end will be in a way that turns them into pawns so that we somehow are rescued we are somehow we somehow escape now that you can understand of course on a human level while any of this is tempting everybody wants to believe that they're with the good guys everybody wants to believe that they're associated with the white hats rather than the black hats and this very childish American way of thinking about it of course there are reasons that people are invested in this kind of ideology but it's dangerous and I would want to contend with you tonight that this kind of ideology and I don't want to use hyperbole here hyperbole I don't want to overstate I um, I don't want to be poetic I don't want to be flowery any of those things but I don't think I'm overstating the case when I say that kind of ideology that kind of theology at loose in the world actually cost people their lives I'm gonna say that one more time that kind of ideology that kind of theology cost real people their lives people die because they're people who live in places like I do like Oklahoma who really, deeply, truly are convinced of this. By the way, not evil people. Not people who fundamentally uh, want chaos and destruction in the world. Not people who don't love their kids. Not people who don't necessarily love their physical neighbors. In fact, these are people often who literally would give this shirt off their back for someone else. On an individual level, would do anything good, anything loving, anything caring for anybody that they came across that was in need. But when they start to think about things on this communal level, when they start to think about the world in this global geopolitical level, then no longer are they obligated to love their neighbors in this way. Then when you start to take these individual stories that are in fact connected and you make them part of a larger story, then they feel somehow exempt then they somehow somehow feel like they're the rescued ones, the chosen ones, who don't have to deal with anything hard. And I want to contend with you tonight that there is no—and I, I really mean this when I say it. I'm going to look very straight at the iPhone camera when I say it. There is no greater obstacle to peace in this world than people who believe that violence has to come in order for peace to be established. In case that's confusing, let me say it again. There is no obstacle to peace in this world. There is no obstacle to peace in this current moment than people who on a bone marrow level have become deeply convinced that in order for their own peace to be established, for the peace of their immediate family to be established, that violence has to come for others. Those of us who are Christians believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Prince of Peace. And when people have an anticipation, when they have an expectation, that in order for the good reign and rule of the Messiah that's coming to be established in the world, that that means their neighbors must have their blood spilled. This belief, which I'm convinced, for almost everybody that I know, is not in here... If you can't see where I'm pointing, it's not here. It's on, not on the heart level. It's not on a bone level. It's not what you feel and what you know in your deepest self, but it's up here. It is an intellectual concept. It is, an, it is a theological concept. It is something that exists in the abstract that allows us to create distance between ourselves and real people who are suffering travail in the world right now. It means for those of us who, and I know a lot of us have been deeply invested in this, who have cared a lot about people on both sides of this Jewish Palestinian divide in our time, for people who have been invested in the kind of conflict that exists in the Middle East, for those of us who are hearing stories right now of what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine. We're not able to see and hear from people who are suffering and adapt a posture that simply says, God, help them. We're not able to simply jump into a posture where we are able to say, how can I become the embodiment of God's help in the world myself? Because instead, we go straight to this intellectual construct in which we believe that certain kind of people have to experience suffering certain kind of people have to experience pain in order for us to be redeemed with our community here at the table in OKC my friends had actually asked me today if I could offer up some kind of prayer for Ukraine and I didn't want to make that loaded or anything like that but it's so hard for me to get into that space and not be constantly aware of the fact that there are so many people right now whose theology is keeping them from seeing people's humanity it's what I've seen is people have had abstract debates about LGBTQ plus about folks from those community their humanity becomes abstract from systems of theology So instead of seeing people as created, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, instead of seeing the world as I believe God sees the world, which is the sense that all our sons and daughters. We have permission to play favorites. We have permissions to turn this into uh, the old TV show Gunsmoke. We have permission to turn this into a Western where there are simplistic good guys Bad guys, because we don't have to contend with the real humanity of anybody involved. So in the spirit of that, I wrote this, if it's okay, if I can take just a moment to read this to you. I wrote, O God who does not come to use the wars of men, but to end them. O God who does not come to collaborate with death as friend or accomplice but as an enemy to overthrow. Deliver us from the delusion that we need war in order for the Prince of Peace to come. Oh God, we have seen the face of the Antichrist already. And his name is utility. Our demons sound like reasons. Reasons that terror must come. So many good reasons not to welcome Shalom now. Work for Shalom now. Their name is Legion, for they are many. Open our eyes to see that war is not useful Bodies are not useful. Suffering is not useful. People are not useful. We are so used to having our own pain commandeered for someone else's plan. We are used to commandeering the pain of others for ourselves. Heal our eyes. That we may not may not see our neighbors as pawns, heal our eyes, that we may not see ourselves as pawns, but instead as peacemakers, as participants, peacemakers, those that make peace, not that simply wait for it. God who gives superfluously. Deliver us from the utilitarianism that makes violence necessary. As our neighbors suffer, let us try not to see how they fit into the plan, just to see them, to ask you for help, to become help when people are useful they think only of ourselves they say that prices will surge may our prayers surge even more may our love surge even more O God of all tears man of all sorrows acquainted with grief get us out of our religious headspace so that we may meet you in the heartbreak where you were always and only found. Amen. That's my prayer for today because I want so desperately for people to be able to see what happens in the world not as manifestations of a God who's playing a game of chess but rather a God who very much puts the future into our hands and calls us to be co-laborers where we have to dream out loud we have to be the ones who create the kind of world that we live in where we become the ones who are responsible where we actually bear responsibility for our neighbors instead of being able to sit back in relative peace and safety and assume that whatever's happening to them does not happen to us. I went on this little run the other day when i was speaking to our community at the table, OKC, okay, I thought about putting this up on the Zycast. maybe I still will, we'll see. But the whole spirit of the thing as I have people come to me all the time and they ask me because they know something of who I am and what I believe um, and they know that I believe really what I feel like I've articulated in different ways so far already and I don't mean this as again hyperbole, it's not an exaggeration I don't think there is a greater force for violence or maybe I should say it this way I don't believe there's a greater inhibition to peace and peacemaking the world than this sense of that people of God have that violence is necessary for God to be able to accomplish God's purposes. Uh, I'm not speaking out of my butt here. As a person who deeply loves folks who live in Israel and who are Jewish people proper, spend a lot of time in Palestinian homes, spend a lot of time in Palestinian villages, and one of the things that I've learned there, one of the things I've seen there one of the things that I've seen in the biblical story. You know, Abraham's sons actually were not somehow destined or predestined to be at war with each other forever. When their father Abraham died, the sons came together to bury their dad together in peace. But we perpetuated this idea that somehow there has to be, theologically there's a reason, that Jewish people and Palestinian people have to be at odds. They're in fact playing out some kind of ancient conflict. Nothing they can do about it and all we can do is sit back and watch but ultimately it ends in some kind of Armageddon that we somehow hope for because we're again a lot of people in my tradition are hoping to be beamed up out. The fact of the matter is that's not at all what we get in the Hebrew Scripture. The God who appeared to Abraham, who said to Abraham that I'm going to give you a great name, and I'm gonna make you a great nation. The point of that from the beginning, what God said to Abraham, Abraham, Abram, is that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. God picked out Israel, God picked out the Jewish people as a minority people to say that through the story of these persecuted people, through the story of these people who live in a context where uh, many of the folks around them were practicing child sacrifice, through the voice of these people who knew what it was to be enslaved under the Egyptians and then later to be enslaved under the Babylonians and later to be enslaved under the Persians, God said from these people who have always been beneath the thumb of human oppression, I am going to make a story intelligible to the world through which all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God, in the words of my good friend, Dr. Chris Green, God chooses the elect for the sake of the non-elect. God chooses the chosen for the sake of the non-chosen so that ultimately no one feels left out. So ultimately, there is redemption not only for Jacob, but also for Esau. So ultimately, all of the outsiders are able to become insiders. And as God, by the Holy Spirit, breathed on these prophets that came up from the far ends of Israel as existed before, God breathed on them and God spoke to them in such a way always as to make this story possible, that Israel's story would not be Israel's story alone, but would be the story of salvation for the whole world. Well, ultimately, all would be blessed. All would come to know the peace and the shalom that God promised to Abraham. Unfortunately, what happens all too all too often, and this is not about Judaism here, this is not being anti-Semitic, we see this in Judaism, we see it in Christianity, we see it in Islam, we see it in Every possible expression of faith is that inevitably there's always a temptation isn't there for insiders to rise up, to believe that the story has really always been about them in some way, that they need someone else to be outside so they can feel inside. They need someone else to feel excluded so that they can be included. And yet that's never where the story was going, where the story was going from the beginning that God spoke in such a way that the time would come when nobody has to be left out. Unfortunately, and I say this with grief in my heart, not accusation, not anger, not blame, but what we've seen, for example, whereas lots of evangelical Christians, and this is really a lot of people, have believed. That God is uniquely with Israel over against anybody else who lives in the Middle East. That all of these other Arab descendants of the promise are somehow not connected to the heart of Yahweh. Believing that there needs to be an us and them is that people actively fund a war machine. People actively fund this. What we've seen from people like John Hagee, what we've seen with organizations like um, uh, the the whole sort of Christians for Israel kind of movement, is that when there is conflict, that instead of trying to be peacemakers, keep in mind that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers, not people who passively wait for peace to come, not for people who are waiting for peace to fall to the sky. Blessed are the peace." Makers, Jesus blessed people who will make peace in the world because peace has to be made. Peace doesn't just drop on us. So many things of God, so many of the gifts of God do seem to fall out of the sky like they're a gift. Peace is not one of them. Peace has to be made. Peace has to be worked for. Peace has to be striven for. But when people don't believe that, when they don't believe blessed are the peacemakers, and they instead believe that God has uniquely before time blessed some people and not others, that God has predestined some and not others that God has chosen some to go up and some to go down. I understand that language of predestination is used in our Christian New Testament. Can I help you with that for just a moment? The idea from the very beginning is that predestination, the idea of election being chosen by God, was never about salvation. It was never about some people being saved and some people being left out. It was about vocation. It was not about who's saved and who's not. It was not about who's in and who's out. The idea was not about salvation but about vocation. God chooses some so that through them everyone can come to the light. God uniquely blesses some so that through them everybody will be drawn. I'll say it one more time. Election, predestination, all that language we get in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul and others is not and has not ever been about salvation. Some people are saved and some people are not. It was about vocation. Some would be uniquely blessed. Some would be uniquely raised up. Some would have a kind of influence in the world through which they would be a vehicle of blessing so that all the families of the earth, that's not my language. I'm not making this up. This is not a liberal script. This is not something I learned in seminary. I'm telling you by force of not just revelation. I'm telling you what's there in the book of Beersheet, the book of Genesis, that God said, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Either all the families are blessed or they're not. Either all of the world is somehow under this promise or they are not. But God said to Abraham through you that a light would come that would go forth to all the nations. And it wouldn't be my sweet, beautiful, 10-pound Havanese fellas laying at my feet right now. It wouldn't be the sense that there are some that are pets and some that are disregarded, some that are disrespected, some that are left out know that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the very moment that we allow that story to be hijacked for any version of an us versus them, I don't know how you feel about this, but for me this is Theology 101 as a Christian, that anything good that God ever did for Israel, anything good that God ever did for those ancient Hebrew people, that anything good that God ever did for Yeshua or Jesus, that anything good that God ever did for anyone ever, was ultimately for the sake of the world. Anything God did for Israel was for the sake of the world. Anything that God did for Abraham was for the sake of the world. Anything that God did for Jesus, God did for the sake of the world. It is just the very nature of God's grace and the nature of God's blessing that none of nothing that's ever been given as a gift has been for a handful of people to hoard, but is rather something that is supposed to be for the empowerment, for the raising up, for the blessing of all people. And if we really believe that, then we believe not just Jewish people in Israel, but we believe that Palestinians are not left out. And we believe in terms of what's happening in Russia that people in the Ukraine are not left out we believe that all of those throughout time, and I do believe that the prophet Daniel and the prophet John and the New Testament sense, speak very pointedly to the reality of Babylon, speak very pointedly to the reality of empire, but there is a hope that all of those who have suffered under the reign of these empires would come to a place of flourishing. That's the best word I have for it. A place of flourishing. A place where their own souls can be blessed. I know sometimes, because, uh, keep in mind, and I'm plugging in my power here, uh, my cord here to make sure that hopefully we don't lose power as a recording, that as a person who really does believe that all of those, um, I'm hoping this works here. Y'all still with me? As a person who really does believe, right, that this promise of God, that this salvific hope that we've been reflecting on is for all people in all the world uh, who believes that this is not just a hope for a few, Uh, I certainly will have people who will ask me because they've seen the Christian story used in a way that will marginalize. They've seen the Christian story used in a way that oppresses. They've seen people be left out, ostracized hurt worse than they were before because of the message they've heard from people of faith and I hear a lot of people say now and I really do understand it when they look at the history of not just religions in general but Christianity in general in particular rather when they look at the atrocities when they look at the Crusades when they look at the Inquisition when they look at just how many times they have seen the mechanism of Christianity be turned into an instrument through which people have been oppressed who say you know the whole problem with this business is religion the whole problem with this business has been Christianity from the beginning and I largely agree with that statement please hear this as someone who and I really do believe this uh, does not at this point in my life have any Apologetic concerns, Apologetics is the word that we use for the defense of God. I'm not interested in apologetics. My sense all along has been, as a person who believes that Jesus of Nazareth has already been resurrected from the dead, that he is not in need of our defense. God has already risen from the dead. He's not in need of our defense. I don't feel like I need to defend Jesus. I don't need to, I don't feel the need to defend Christians. I don't feel the need to defend. Christianity, Um, I am perfectly, I don't want to say comfortable because it's so unsettling, but I will every time acknowledge the deep chaos and pain that has been caused by people in the name of institutional religion or institutional Christianity. And yet, there is this tension because we know while so much oppression and literal actual slavery has come into the world through Christian people, We also know that hospitals and modern medicine and a general sense for a lot of people in the world that it's not okay to kill your brother or your sister or your neighbor comes generally speaking from the Christian story being kind of massaged, being kind of worked out in the world. How are both of those things true? Well, I think it's true because not just in Christianity, but in every faith system, and I would even want to contend in every system, there is always this tension The moment something becomes institutionalized, which I tend to think is more or less inevitable, but the moment that something becomes institutionalized, it is liable to be co-opted in some form. So if we were to talk today not about Christianity, but if we were to talk about great rock and roll, if we were to talk about the punk rock of the 70s and we start talking about the Ramones, or maybe we're talking about hip-hop and we're talking about a tribe called quest hey we've seen it happen over and over again that where there is creativity that flourishes where there are artists that flourishes that wherever two or three are gathered there will be institutions wherever two or three are gathered there will be empire so then all of a sudden people come along who try to Mechanize, instrumentalize, weaponize these forces so that now you're not just dealing with beautiful music, you're dealing with a record label. So now, uh, you know, as a person who loves films and has seen a number of films that have been so awe-inspiring and so human, so beautiful and so vulnerable, but who among us would want to say right now that Hollywood as an industry is exactly a is a healthy forum, right? We see that people come along and they co-opt, they adapt these forms for their own purposes and they become institutionalized. It's what happens to Christianity in the 300s when the Emperor Constantine claimed, and to be clear I don't believe this, but he claimed that he saw a cross in the sky and he said by this cross we will conquer. And the symbol that had always been about self-sacrifice, that had always been about humility and love and laying down your life for others, for him became a symbol of us against them, a symbol of empire, a symbol of domination, a symbol of rule. And from that time of the 300s on, we have a legacy, especially in Western Christianity, of people who have often had their faith co-opted by systems and structures of power. To use the language of the Apostle Apostle Paul, principalities and powers, these structural forces and realities that come in the name of faith, come in the language of faith, but we think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, saying the time will come that many will say to him, you've proclaimed my name, you've talked all about me, you knew my name, but at the end of things I will say to you, despite your miracles depart from me for you never knew me because these are people that acknowledge God with their lips but not with their lives their lives speak of oppression their lives speak of domination their lives do not speak of the flourishing of others it's selfishness it's vanity it's greed but the name of Jesus the name of Yeshua is co-opted and brought into what they're doing and that somehow gets sanctified as if that's somehow a system of light friends I want to contend that, that has never been the story of Jesus and if you go a different way if you go a different story I have no condemnation I have no blame it's not like that but I'm going to tell you that the story that we get whether it's through Martin Luther King or family Lou Hamer whether it's through Otis Moss II or Otis Moss III the story that I've been given through people like my beloved Saint Sister Mark Gaines the people who, the story that I've been given through friends that aren't here anymore like Rachel Held Evans, that story is not a story of imperial domination. It is not about the subjugation of others and it's not about turning people into objects. It's not about my salvation happening at someone else's expense. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of flourishing that is applicable to all. Nobody's left out. And nobody gets trampled on so that some people are able to survive. Nobody gets dominated so that some people are able to live out their dream. Some people don't have to lose so that others have to win. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that the cross of Yeshua, the cross of Jesus, cuts so far against this that, in fact, friends, uh, our God is a God who somehow binds up all of our losses and all of our suffering and all of our pain, but who is working towards a story of redemption, who is working towards a, a story of flourishing that has never, 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 and I could use a thousand stories in the Hebrew Bible and through New Testament scriptures as well, it's never been about us, it's always been about them, the people that we deem as being other. The very people that we would claim are somehow on the other side of the line. Yet that is always the scandal: is that God is redeeming both the oppressed and the oppressor; that God is calling those who have dominated and those who have been dominated into a way of humility, a way of nonviolence. I going to say that again: a way of nonviolence. I still don't understand how Christians don't see when they, see if they believe that the, in the words of the language of the Gospel of John. Um, that the Word, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and they believe that that Word is Jesus. Uh, Eugene Peterson's great phrase in the neighborhood the Word moved into the neighborhood with us. They believe that the Word of God is ultimately Jesus, and that Jesus is the last Word, and that Jesus is the final Word over everything and everyone else that we've ever heard. How is it possible? That the ultimate image of God that we get in Yeshua is Jesus crucified on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It is the ultimate image of God, it's the ultimate revelation of God, and yet so many people still don't believe that that's what God is like. They don't believe that God is self sacrificial, they don't believe that God is loving. They would say that. They would say, God loves you, and I do too. And I'm not saying they don't mean it, (laughs) but they say that God loves you, and I do too, still believing that God is for the flourishing of some and not others. They would say that God is uh, somehow in the grand scheme of things still ultimately about sending some people up and some people down. They don't believe that the ultimate revelation of God is a humble God who says even to the ones who are crucifying him actively, Father forgive them for they know not what they're doing they don't believe the ultimate image of God is in self-sacrifice they don't believe the ultimate image of God is in love they don't believe the ultimate God is ultimate image of God is an image of surrender one of subjugation one that still requires someone else to lose one that still requires someone else to be underneath I just don't believe that God is that way and the reason that I believe that is because I am a Christian. It is precisely because I believe that the same Yeshua who said, I am the same yesterday, who, who said to us, right? Uh, I'm, I'm quoting Hebrews, actually, the, the same yesterday, today and forever. But Yeshua who says, take up your cross and follow me. Not just this idea. Yes, there is a way in which Jesus, Yeshua, is the sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. But there's also a way in which the crucified one says to each of us, take up your own cross and follow me. Come this way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I am the person, the truth, and the life. I, not that I am the doctrine, the truth, and the life. Not that doctrine doesn't matter. Not that theology doesn't matter. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is not just an idea. Jesus is not just a set of propositions. I love the Apostles' Creed. But Jesus is not just a creed. Jesus is a way. Jesus is way. There is a Jesus way. There is a way of self-sacrifice. There is a way of humility. There is a way of surrender. There is a way of deferring to our neighbors and loving our neighbors. There is a way that does not look like Jesus. There is a way that does not look like self-sacrifice. It looks like Putin. It looks like power over. It looks like needing to rule. It looks like needing to exercise dominion. But God has never been in any of that. God has always been working from the underside. And through the Hebrew prophets we see God working from the underside. Hebrew scripture we see God working from the underside. Through Yeshua we see God working from the underside so that ultimately all would come to a place where they would be able to receive this liberating, redeeming word that God is love. Not just that God is loving, but that God is love. And ultimately those of us who are called to the imitation of God imitate this self-sacrificing bleeding love where we lay down our lives for the sake of others. Not that we need others to fit our script or to fit into our story so that we can hit the escape button, but ultimately that all can flourish, all can thrive, all can come into the peace, the shalom, the goodness, the truth, the justice, and the mercy. As the prophet Isaiah foretold long ago, the time would come when the mountains were gonna be brought low, right? The valleys would be exalted. Mountains come low, valleys be exalted. Good news if you're in the valley, bad news if you're on the mountain, because this God is an equalizer and this God comes not just so some can be redeemed, so that some can be the beneficiaries because they signed up for <laughs> the right divine insurance plan. <laughs> But rather, this has been the purpose in the heart of God all along, is that everybody could come into a place of flourishing, that nobody has to languish under condemnation, under doubt, under self-doubt. Nobody has to hate themselves, even if others have hated you, even if others have rejected you, even if others have despised you. The God who told Abram that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, blesses you, speaks your name and the same way that God spoke over Yeshua his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, God speaks to you now that you are my beloved son you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved child, wherever you identify on the spectrum, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased and you don't have to fight for that you don't have to make a case for that, you don't have to convince anybody else in order for you to be completely deeply desperately loved that's the state in which you exist it's how god created you it's how you are now love is the ground floor of truth of all things and the end of the day and if i'm speaking to word, you know i think the whole idea of what jesus tells the disciples that whenever they eat they eat that passover meal again and they would take the bread and they would take the wine, and they would remember, they remember the sacrifice that Yeshua made for us. Um, I want to call you to remember your own true name. That on some level that you know that God's script is not that you're left out, that God's script is not that you're rejected, that God's script is not that you're not good enough, that nothing that's happened to you, that nothing you've done, that nothing disqualifies you from the true name that you have been given. God gives you now, which is beloved. I know I've said a lot of things, but in the midst of so many things happening in the world, I hope somehow that you can cling on to that world because I know there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of sense of like, hey, there are people out there who are more pious than me and more this than me, and more that than me, and I'm here and I'm talking about these things, but also about bourbon, about pop culture, whatever. What does he really know about Jesus? You know what? I'll let you discern what's happening in your own soul. If I could reach out into that screen, I could look you eyeball to eyeball in person. I wish you could hear me say these words right now. You are God's beloved. You are the object of God's delight. And to use the language of 1 John, why don't you test the spirits? Why don't you discern the spirits? Why don't you taste and see? Why don't you try and see? Why don't you test this and see? Whether or not you really deep down believe, because I think on a cellular level, a lot of people who claim they believe this don't believe this, whether or not you really believe that all people are beloved, that all people are chosen, or do you really believe on some level that some are chosen and some are left out? I think on a soul level, on a gut level, you know the truth. You know the truth of your belovedness. And so what I'm speaking into is not necessarily something new. It's not something that's coming out of the blue and hitting you over the head. This is speaking to something you've always known but have not yet maybe had the capacity or just the opportunity to remember. To remember your true name. To remember that you are loved. To remember that you are created and formed in the image of God. To remember that you are created in delight and in wonder. And that the God who created you in love, accepts you now. And the only thing that's unacceptable is to put our, ourselves in a posture where we proudly believe that we are the ones who are chosen and esteemed over against someone else. This is exactly what I'm getting so preached that the Apostle Paul is saying to the Church of Corinth. What happens with the way they practice their table, of coming to the table of the Lord, the table of Jesus is that they do it in such a way that acknowledges the same divisions that exist in the world. There are insiders and they're outsiders. The wealthy people get to eat all the bread and drink all the wine that they want. Other people pick up the scraps. Paul says in doing this, you have not rightly discerned the body of Christ. The body of Christ, does it work that way? The body of Christ, does it work by insider and outsider? The body of Christ, does it work with some people being privileged and some people not being privileged? The body of Christ, does it work with some people being chosen and others not being chosen? The body of Christ, does it work? with some kids get to sit at the cool kids table and other people are excluded this is not the table of jesus this is not the table of yeshua but rather he is the one who even to the person who has already betrayed him and to the person who is about to deny him says this is my body which is broken for you this is my blood which is shed for you this is the one who says to all Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. This is the last word of God, the last word of Yahweh to humanity, the defining word of Yahweh to humanity. It's not one of judgment, but one of redemption and one of blessing. And I hope if nobody else is speaking that into your life, that I'm speaking into your life right now, because I believe it from uh, toenails that you are God's beloved, that you are loved, that you are cherished, that you are treasured. Thanks for hanging around. I talked a whole lot longer than I'm into. If you're enjoying the Zeitcast, the I would so appreciate it if you would subscribe, if you would like, if you would comment, do all the things. That's great. so appreciate it. For anybody who wants to support us on Patreon, it's a really big deal. Thank you so much. Could not be able to do this without you. But whether you do anything that you don't like, comment, don't like, don't, like whatever, it's really important that you get that you are God's beloved and it's really important that you get that everybody you don't like is god's beloved too it's really important that you believe that uh, and i do believe that uh, because i don't think i've said it quite this clearly if i have it said this way there are a lot of different ways of gauging truth there are a lot of different ways of gauging theological truth and lots of uh ways we can parse this right and i know that you've heard from other people that aren't me that have given you different methodologies from this This might sound too overly simplistic, and if I seem wordy or whatever, this might be the part where I seem too simple, too childish or whatever. But can I say it like this? Your theology shouldn't kill anybody. Your theology shouldn't sacrifice somebody else. If there comes a place or a point in your life or mine where we feel like we need to lay our life down for somebody else, that we need to put ourselves at risk for another, then that's our decision and we do that willfully, and we do that consciously. But your theology shouldn't be at someone else's expense. Jesus is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. So you don't need anybody else to be sacrificed. You don't need anybody else to suffer. You don't need anybody else to be left out for you to be in. You don't need anybody else to be excluded so you can be included. Uh, None of us, I'll say that one more time, your theology shouldn't kill anybody. But what I've seen all too often is that when people believe that God needs the nation of Israel in some current or modern form to be established in this way and other people to lose, people die. They really do. I don't care if you believe in, believe me or not because you hear all kind of words about this agenda and that agenda. I'm telling you, there is an unbelievable amount of money. There is a ton of money. There is a lot of influence and affluence that goes to that narrative. God wants to bless these people at someone else's expense, those people can flourish. No one else gets to prosper. If someone dies as the result of theology, if, so, if there need to be bodies that are, um, are going to be bled out in the street, if there need to be people who are going to be sacrificed in order for your story, your narrative to come true, there's no way that that's God. That can't be the voice of God. I don't believe that. Do you really believe that? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of you would say it, a lot of you argue with me. But do you really believe that? Do you really believe that other people need to suffer, that other people need to be left out in order for some to be saved or in order for you to be saved? Whenever there's questions, I think that's a good rule of thumb. Your theology shouldn't kill anybody. How I feel about again my LGBTQ friends. I think your theology shouldn't kill anybody. I think when there's suicide and there's self-harm and there's people who are so tortured tortured and so tormented that they don't even think they want to get out of bed the next morning. I'm thinking that it's not the will of God that people should die. And I'm thinking that where theology brings a fruit of death and, and it brings a fruit of self-loathing and it brings a sense of isolation and alienation. Instead of beckoning us, instead of summoning us into this self-sacrificial love that enables us to be able to love our neighbors as ourselves, that enables us to truly prefer our neighbor over ourselves in some way. I don't think that's ever what God is doing, but I think conversely, the very moment that you think, maybe God is at work in places I didn't suspect, maybe God is at work in exactly the people that I don't know. Maybe as a Palestinian person, I see the hand of God at work and these people connect very deeply with the Jewish story. And as a Jewish person, I see God at work and God's hand on Palestinian people. And maybe it means as a Christian that lives in America, that all of the other many, many groups of people who have often been left out of the story of Western Christianity, I see God at work in them, and I see God at work outside the institutions. See, that's always been the issue, right, is the institutionalism in any form. And I know we're all part of institutions. Hey, it's the critique of the book of Revelation. It's the mark of the beast, is that everybody has to pay a price in order to be able to buy and sell. And the very fact that you're participating in this right now, the fact that you're watching on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever—we're all participants in it in some way. And so, no matter how sustainable you decide to go, how organic you had to—you decide to go. Well, my shoes were uh, were made ethically. Was your phone made ethically? Everything. Everybody. Everybody pays to play. Everybody's involved in Babylon's system of buying and selling in some way. Everybody's co-opted. And yet, 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 yet—even this world in which empire always seems to dominate and always seems to win. I believe that there are still times and places that people are able to see a God at work outside of their own people, outside of their own system, outside of their own structure. Yes, I have seen God at work here, but Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice, and they are able to see and hear and discern the voice of God, the beauty of God, the goodness of God in people who are very much unlike them, and they might understand them. They might understand their narrative. They might not understand where they come from. They might understand... I might look at them and still think they're weird. They might say like, I don't know how you can feel like that. I don't know how you can see the world like that. I don't know how you can hold those convictions. Those aren't my convictions. How can anybody think that? And yet still believe that somehow that the same that God is at work on their behalf and the very fact that they don't necessarily line up with where you are and they might necessarily be like you oh 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 could it be that God is always at work in what we perceive as otherness and the very people that we perceive as somehow being unlike us are the people that God is most using in our lives to teach us what it is to love recklessly and uh and thoroughly man it's such a Terrible, fierce, and awful thing when people are able even to love their own kids. Oh my goodness, whether or not my kids meet up this expectation or that, how many people have been wounded by this because their parents needed them to be one thing rather than another? Surely you recognize that the grace of God, the way of God, the favor of God, the blessing of God is in acceptance and is in that kind of unconditional offering of. Love and that unconditional offering of like, hey, you belong to me. Surely you recognize that God's grace is behind that. Surely you recognize that whenever anybody has made a significant change in their life in any direction or the other, that it's not been because they've been at the threat of a barrel of the gun held against their head, but because they believed on some level that they're so loved and they're so treasured and they're so cherished. And it's precisely because they're not worthless and they're not dirty and they're not thrown out that anything is possible, that addictions can be broken and relationships uh, can become whole because I'm not a bad person. I'm someone that God says, over against all the evidence, even the evidence that might seem to come from my own life, that God says is beloved, that God says is cherished, God says is treasured. Surely you have to recognize on some level within yourself that that is the story that's truthful and not the story that says if you perform right, God loves you. If you get it right, then you're going to be accepted. That those who crush it are those for whom God will say in the end, come on in. But oh, no, 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 no. This is the reason that Jesus spread the feast open to, to beggars and to lepers and all the outcasts of society. It's the movement of those whole story. It's why God was saying over and over again to the prophets, those of you who think you are the insiders have actually become the outsiders because this is not who I am. This has always been oriented towards those who've been on the outskirts and to the margins. And the only requirement to come into the blessing of God, the only requirement to live in this place, is that you come into a place where instead of living from pride and instead of living from a place of self-sufficiency, you live from a place of surrender. And you say, I am not all that. And you don't judge the other people who are coming to the table around you. You don't judge them as being somehow uh, good or bad. You realize you're not the referee. That's not just not on you to do. You live though you leave those things up to God and you come in humility and you come in surrender and instead of being needing to evaluate that's the whole thing in the book of Genesis is the tree not of good and evil but the knowledge of good and evil instead of needing to play God instead of needing to play a judge instead of needing to be the person who decides insiders and outsiders good and bad and those kinds of things you just get to be the person who participates in this mission of love and as you receive the love of God in what seems to be the deepest and darkest parts of yourselves, and as you receive the love of God in the places that you don't know how to go into and the places that you don't know how to affirm and you don't know how to accept and bless or any of those things, as you receive the love of God in all those cracks and crevices, you become the kind of person who's able to bring that love to others. And as you receive the love of God in your depths, and as you receive the love of God in these places where um, uh, there's ambiguity you learn to love other people in their ambiguity and that my friends is where the gospel becomes good news uh, this has been over an hour I'm so sorry thank you for hanging around thanks for being with me blessings to you wherever you are i want to say one more time in a time that's scary in a time that's tense and a lot of things are being stirred up in a lot of people I want you just to hear that word one more time that you are God's beloved and I don't know always what this means because I don't believe that God directly scripts everything that happens in the world. I think that God does give us free will and autonomy and I believe a lot of tragedies and terrible things that happen in the world are not uh, causally related like in the sense that God wants this or God wills this or whatever. Uh, but there's still a part of me that really believes the song that I heard when I was so young that he's got the whole world in His hands and I hope you can hear that tonight that you are in God's hands and the world is in God's hands because even no matter what perspective you take, no matter how loving you try to be, um, you can't get your arms around all this but you don't have to get your arms around this. You have people that you can get your arms around so get your arms around them. You've got people that you can bless so bless them. You can't fix everything, I get that but you have some people in your life that you are called to love and you're called to love well and you can do that much and you can trust that the God revealed I believe in Yeshua and Jesus of Nazareth is the God who has his arms around everybody tonight and the God who I believe will not cease will not stop until we get to the place the prophet Isaiah foretold where the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that God has always had everybody in mind not just you and me, he's got everybody in mind he's, there's a vision of community, there's a vision of shalom, there's a vision of goodness and peace and hope in which no one's left out that's the kind of God I believe in and ultimately when I go to sleep tonight the only reason if I get any sleep that I'll be able to do so is because on some level I trust that fact that no matter how innovative we get at self-destruction and no matter how um, bad we are at loving our neighbors, that there still is a force of love and logic at work in all created things that is conspiring for goodness, beauty, and redemption. Because I like that sentence so much, I'm gonna say it one more time, that no matter how bad it gets, and no matter what you hear on the news, no matter what you read, no matter what you're anxious about right now, I want to just let you hear those words right now, that there is a force of love and logic at work in the universe. There is a there is a love and logic at work in the cosmos that is not about punishment, that is not punitive, that is not petty, that is not an ogre, that is not offended, that is not thin-skinned, that is not offendable, that is not uh, constantly flailing around <laughs> wanting to be, name dropped all the time, (laughs) but is in fact a God who is working for your good, and is working for everyone's good, and who's working in such a way so that the story of love and the story of peace and the story of justice, where ultimately the mountains will be brought low and the valleys will be exalted, there'll be an equality, everybody gets in the same playing field. I believe that God is working towards that. And to quote the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans if that God is for us, Who can be against us? And that same passage says that there is absolutely nothing, neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nothing below, nothing between. I'm filling the gaps here in that text because this is what Paul means nothing inside, nothing outside, nothing here, nothing there, nothing from this direction or that direction. There is nothing that's able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you can believe that, if you can operate in the security of that, if you can operate in the security that you are beloved and you can walk in the world as God's beloved, I believe that that will make a difference in how the world works and that you operating from that place of groundedness and centeredness and knowing who you are will change the temperature in the room So it might not seem really ambitious right now in the uh, face of the scope and size, right, of global turmoil. But if you believe that you're beloved and if you're not striving, you're not operating out of a place of insecurity and you don't think you have anything else to prove. I believe that being that kind of person, I believe that being God's beloved makes all the difference in the world. Not only in in the kind of person that you become, but in the kind of world that we create God has called us. God has called us as co-laborers with Christ Jesus that God is calling us to create, where God's shalom is made visible in the earth. Thank you, my friends, for being with me. Thank you for indulging, ranting, and raving. I'm with you. You are not alone. You are, uh, if you feel unseen, it's not true. I'm praying for you. And pray that even now that you'll feel the grace and light of God's Holy Spirit, which is the very breath of God, filling your lungs even now. Peace, blessings, shalom, my friends. Good night.